Okay, so we're, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 11. Actually, if you said no, you definitely need to stay. Uh, Mark chapter 11, we're going to get there. We're in our series called The Final Steps, and we have traced the life of Jesus Christ through the Gospels. We took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put them in chronological order as best as we possibly could. And for two years, we've been going through that series, and we hope that it has opened up a new way of seeing the Scripture. Um, and this is not an, any new revelation. It's just taking things a lot slower and digging in very deep to what the Scripture is saying. But now we're in the final steps. These are the, uh, this is the week from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. And uh, so we're looking very closely at the events that lead up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at Mark chapter 11. <clears throat> the title of the message today is, Why Are We Unfruitful? Why are we unfruitful? I know that's probably not even a real English word, um, but uh, I made it up. So there we go. Mark chapter 11, we're looking at verses 12 through 14, and then we'll jump to verse 20. This is what Mark wrote. He said, on the following day, so on the following day from what? Palm Sunday. So this is now Monday morning of Passion Week. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So let me pause there for a second. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem from Bethany on a donkey. He does some stuff, talks to some people, and then he leaves in, at the end of the day, and he goes back to Bethany because that's where he had friends. Bethany's just right on the outside of Jerusalem. So he goes there, spends the night, hangs out with friends. Then he comes back into Jerusalem Monday morning, and this is where we pick up. He was hungry, so he left Lazarus' house without breakfast. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, this is now Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. <clears throat> so as I said, Jesus said, come into Jerusalem and then left. Then he came back in Monday morning, cursed the fig tree, did whatever he wanted to do on Monday, and then he left. Tuesday's coming back into Jerusalem from Bethany where he was staying, and now they find the fig tree withered away. So as he's coming from Bethany into Jerusalem, he passes a tiny little town, and it's, uh, we, we talked about it last, uh, last week. Uh, it's called Bethphage. Now, people pronounce it Bethpage or Bethphage. It's a P-H-A-G-E at the end, but in Greek, it's Bethphage. And that town means the house of unripe figs. So numerous scriptures prophesy that Israel will be fruitful, that every man will sit under the shade of his own fig tree and enjoy God's blessings. But this town, Bethphage, was known as the exact opposite of that. It was known to be an unfruitful town. Now, when Jesus first walked up to the tree, at first glance, we can feel like it's a bit of an overreaction by Jesus. Mark wrote that it wasn't yet the season for figs, but Jesus had an expectation to find some. Clearly, He's Jesus. He knows everything. He knows it's not the season for figs. He knows that figs don't bloom until the summer. 
And Passover, this, the week that we're in right here, is in the spring, March, April. So the leaves are there, but the fruit is not. Why did Jesus expect to find figs? Why did he expect to find fruit when there wouldn't be fruit? Because when a fig tree has leaves, it also has prefigs that show and demonstrate it's a fruitful tree. There would be evidence of health. <clears throat> if the tree is in full bloom, it's giving the appearance of health and vitality. But upon closer inspection, fruit was completely absent. Now, you might be thinking, as I was thinking when I read this, what's the point of this passage? Pastor Jason, last week you called us donkeys. We're supposed to be like donkeys, taking Jesus everywhere he wants to go. Now you're calling us unripe figs. We're really confused, and our ego is suffering a wee bit. Well, what's the point of this passage? Here it is. The fig tree was an analogy of Israel. It was an analogy of God's people. In Scripture, Israel is repeatedly compared to a fig tree. A healthy fig tree bursts forth in leaves and abundant fruit two times a year. Jesus saw what was healthy on the outside, but it was clearly not healthy on the inside because it didn't have any of those pre-figs. There was the appearance of fruitfulness, but instead there was barrenness. And when Jesus cursed the fig tree for this very thing, it was a precursor of the cursing of Israel for rejecting its Messiah and for constantly rejecting true and obedient worship. The very next thing after Jesus cursed this fig tree on Monday is he returned to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember uh, in our previous sermon series, Jesus has already cleared the temple once. He kicked out all the corrupt money changers and who, who defrauded pilgrims. They sold diseased and defective animals for sacrifice, and they were robbing people blindly. So what did Jesus find when he came into Jerusalem again? Did he find the temple situation corrected? Did he find people dealing with others righteously? Did he find healthy animals for sacrifice? Did he see people approaching the temple and thereby God with reverence, awe, humility, and holiness? No. He found the exact same situation in the temple as he did the first time he kicked people out. He found people using God's law as an opportunity for corruption, for lawlessness, for deceit. That God's house of prayer had become yet again a house of thieves. Where he should see the fruit of righteousness, he saw the fruit of wickedness instead. So just like with the fig tree, just like with the temple, Christians can have an outward appearance of righteousness and fruitfulness and yet be dead and rotten on the inside. Now, you might immediately start thinking about some Christians you know who you're pretty sure are dead and wicked on the inside. You may have had a bit of a run-in with them on Facebook this week, as so often happens. We can look righteous, but 
As it was with the Pharisees, so it can still be with us. We can look, we can be what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, but full of death on the inside. But how do Christians get that way? How, what do we do that pushes us from a place of fruitfulness to a place of spiritual barrenness? I'll give you six, six reasons, six examples of how Christians can move from fruitfulness to barrenness. And they're all in Scripture. The first one, first reason a Christian is unfruitful is when they declare false messages. When they declare false messages. I'm going to give you two examples, and there are so, so many that are popping up more and more in Pentecostal churches and we are a Pentecostal church, so we're, we, we need to be the gatekeepers and the guardians of Pentecostal theology, what's good and bad. And originally in my notes, I was going to name names. And I thought about doing that, and I'm not going to do that today. You'll just have to Google it if you really want to know. <clears throat> um, and I, I hesitate. I wanted to share because I want you to be wary of people, but I think the overwhelming idea is that you always need to have your guard up when you hear a teaching, especially if it's new and you've never heard it before. You need to be aware. Say, is that really in the Bible? And so I'm going to give you a couple examples, um, <clears throat> but you should absolutely check the theology of any church or any pastor before you accept anything that they teach. And the first example I want to give you is what's called the seven mountain mandate. It is promoted by some pastors. Now, it sounds very innocent, as, as I'll explain it to you. They believe that the church is mandated to take over seven mountains or seven realms of influence. And those seven are education, religion, family, business, government, arts and entertainment, and media. And these seven sectors of society are thought to mold the way everyone thinks and behaves. Now, this is where it gets into heresy. Because some pastors who adhere to the seven mountain mandate teach that if the church steps up and is able to gain control over these seven spheres of influence, we will have accomplished bringing God's kingdom to earth and the rapture won't need to happen at all. That God will be able to skip the rapture. He'll be able to skip the great tribulation, which takes up about 75% of the book of Revelation, if you've read it. And we can go straight to the second coming. That we will have so in, infused Christianity into our world that we will, through our actions we will have redeemed the world. And the rapture won't need to take place. The great tribulation won't need to take place. He can go straight to the second coming. He can show up because we've made everything right. Can you see how incredibly dangerous and heretical that kind of theology is? That the promised and prophesied events of the end times could possibly be negated by our actions? That we could somehow invalidate God's own word by our behavior? That's not just error, that's heresy. Because you have to understand that every single prophecy about Jesus' first coming was fulfilled. 
And we have a lot of prophecies of the second coming events, the rapture, the tribulation, and his second coming. And if he didn't let a single prophecy fall to the ground without it being fulfilled of his first coming, he won't let a single prophecy be unfulfilled for his second coming. And so it's not just error, it's heresy when you begin to really examine some of these teachings. One church does what's called grave soaking, where they go to graves of men and women of God who have died and they lay on their graves to soak up some of that anointing. From your, from your reaction, you, you understand this is, this is witchcraft. It's witchcraft. There is so much error and heresy going on uh, at, at this one specific church that you need to be very careful of any song or book or teaching that they put out. This church was a former Assembly of God church, and they are Pentecostal. And the pastor said, you don't need a Bible if you have the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't have a Bible because you live in a country where it's illegal and you literally do not possess a Bible, that's one thing. But if you walk into Walmart, Barnes & Nobles, any bookstore, whether it's Christian or not Christian, you're going to be able to find a Bible because it's the number one selling book of all time. So you have access to the Bible. And his idea is that if, if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need the Bible. That gives him, this one specific pastor, the ability to establish new teachings that are contradictory to the Word of God because he can say the Holy Spirit has given him a special revelation. Anything any pastor preaches should be anointed by the Spirit of God and backed up by the Word of God. And any pastor who preaches something that cannot be backed up by the Word of God should keep his mouth shut. I told you, you, you may not like it today. The second heresy that repeatedly makes the rounds is what's called the little God's teaching. The little God's teaching. See, Scripture teaches that we were created in the image and likeness of God. We have a physical, emotional, and mental likeness to Jesus, God in flesh. But the little God's heresy teaches that since we have accepted Christ, we are one with him in our own essence. And what that means is that when we accept Christ, salvation turns us into gods. That is Mormon theology and is not Orthodox Christian theology. One pastor explained it on TBN. So just be aware, you even have to guard yourself on TBN. This is what he said, and I'm quoting him. Am I a god? Well, man was created in the God class. He was not created in the animal class. It was the God's class. He has a uniqueness about him that even the angels do not have. 
Now, and I'm still quoting. Now, Peter said, by exceeding great and precious promises, you become partakers of the divine nature. All right. Are we gods? We are a class of gods. God himself spawned us from his innermost being. Now, if you just tuned in to YouTube and that's all you heard of my sermon, I'm saying that's heresy. So I don't want anybody quoting me as saying that I'm quoting someone else. What he is doing with this pastor, well-known, well-influential, lots of airplanes. What this pastor is saying, what this man, minister is saying, he's actually parroting what he heard another well-known minister say. And this is the direct quote. Every man who has been born again is an incarnation. And Christianity is a miracle. The believer is as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. This person is no longer a Christian, but is Christ. As on my most perfect day, I am still falling short. As holy as I could possibly be, I am still not Christ. I am Christ-like. I desire to be Christ-like but I am not Christ. I am not an incarnation. Jesus is an incarnation. And the danger of that theology is it takes away the specialness of what God did in bringing Christ into this world. Now that guy learned his theology from another guy. And that guy is dead, so I'll tell you his name, John G. Lake. John G. Lake wrote this, and I quote, the power of God, the Holy Ghost, is the spirit of dominion. It makes one a God. No, it doesn't. Now, I grew up listening to these men. My parents had every book by these men on the shelves. We listened to their teaching. We read their books, and we thought it was the gospel truth. It sounded good. It made me feel good. But can you see how dangerous some of this theology is when it's a false message? Can you recognize we are not the ones that need to be exalted? Our perspective must be that of John the Baptist when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. He is God and I am not, nor will I ever be. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 5.12, he said, they have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing, so no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. So the people refused to accept the word of God, and they instead accepted false messages. Then God prophesied destruction against them because of their sins. Heresy and false teaching are becoming harder and harder to spot these days. Every Christian bookstore carries books that really are nothing but self-help books masquerading as Christian living books which sell like hotcakes. You know one of the smallest sections in your Christian bookstore? Bible study. You know one of the biggest sections, the section that takes up more real estate than any other section? Christian living. I really want to encourage all of you, read the Word. 
Study the word of God. Because when you hear error and when you hear heresy or when you read it in some other, somebody's book, you'll go, oh, that's not right. But if you don't know the word of God for yourself, you will never be able to spot error or heresy. Because it'll sound good. It's a, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Study, meditate, memorize the word. One pastor, folks, if you'd memorize the word of God, you would hear this pastor misquote scripture every single Sunday. He retells biblical stories with his own interpretation and his own slant. And then he says he quotes scripture and he doesn't. He misquotes it over and over and over. If you know what the word says, you know error when you hear it. And so if you're feeding yourself more of man's words than God's words, you are likely to be lured off track. God wants a relationship with you, and you need a relationship with this word. It's easy for us to buy a book off the shelf and soak up what this person learns so we don't have to learn it ourselves. But God wants a relationship with you, not a relationship with you through the author of all these other books. Let this be the book you spend more time in than anything else. Number two, another way that Christians can uh, be unfruitful. <clears throat> Greedy, false dealings, and committing abominations. In Jeremiah 8, God accused Israel of perpetual backsliding. And if there could be two words that summed up my teenage years, it would be perpetual backsliding. I wanted to do the right thing and would be thoroughly convicted of my sins on Sunday. But when Monday came, there was no fruit of righteousness. I was a barren fig tree. I had the outward appearance all worked out. I looked good. I looked like I belonged. I looked righteous. But on the inside, I was still full of sin. God said in Jeremiah 8.5, they hold Fast to deceit, they refused to return. Jeremiah 8.10, he said they were greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Sin had invaded the pulpit. No longer would the men of God speak words from God because it would convict them. So instead, they just spoke their own words. They ignored the commands of God. They ignored the spirit of God. And they did whatever they wanted to do. In Jeremiah 8, 11, the prophets, these false prophets would say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They weren't listening to God's words, but when they were expected to give a word from the Lord, they just made one up. They lulled Israel into complacency instead of calling them to repentance. And they, know, they showed no shame when they committed abominations against the holiness of God. When you really get, when you really try to comprehend the holiness of God, you realize that all of us fall short, incredibly short of God's standard. But that's not an excuse to give up. That's an excuse to pursue God even more, to say, God, Reveal in my life anything that I'm falling short on and help me. Number three, idolatry. Idolatry. 
It's one of the reasons that Christians are unfruitful. In Hosea chapter 2, this is really the sermon is an overview of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. In Hosea chapter 2, God condemned Israel for taking the blessings that he had given them and they took them and gave them to worthless idols. He said that it was he who blessed Israel with grain, wine, and oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. What did they do with all the blessings from God? Israel used them in worship to Baal and other idols. Can you think about the the stupidity of idolatry? They had a God that provided for them and blessed them and, and led them. And, but they couldn't see him. And so they took, they chopped down a, a, a tree and they carved an image with that tree and they bowed down to that image that their hands carved. A worthless piece of wood. And they offered sacrifices and gave gold, all the blessings of God, they gave to a worthless idol. In Hosea 9.10, God said this, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Anything, so most of us do not have a carving of wood or metal in our house that we bow down to. We have a a rectangular plasma LED 4K television that we regularly sit at the feet at and worship. I know some of you, y'all got really quiet. (laughs) What do you arrange all your furniture around? We'll move on. But I'll say this before we go to number four. If you were more upset about football being canceled than churches being closed, you need to seriously reevaluate your priorities and your spiritual condition. If you can quote more headlines, baseball statistics, or memes than quoting scriptures, you need to seriously evaluate your spiritual condition. God wants to be God in our lives. But we have a really bad habit of making other things that aren't God at all as God in our lives. We spend more time and money on things that will never satisfy, that will never produce the fruit of righteousness. I see what you post on Facebook, just so you know. If we're friends, I see what you post on Facebook. I see what you comment on Facebook. And I can tell you that some of you need to understand this. When we respond and react, we need to react with the fruit of righteousness. 
And we've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. No one ever got their uh, ideology changed through a comment on Facebook. We can have conversations and, and uh, discussions, uh, but we need to make sure that we're not the parrot for worldly media outlets. And if we're going to respond, we respond in a biblical, loving way. Whew. All right. Some of y'all are going to unfriend me on your way home today. That way you can't see what I'm posting. God is not against our hobbies. You can have hobbies, you know, but you can't make. He, he, God doesn't want to be relegated to the place of a hobby in your life. Okay? You can, you can play baseball. You can knit. You can watch TV and whatever. But don't make God the hobby. Let those things be hobbies that you occasionally do or you do for his glory. All right? Because everything we do, we do for, we should be doing for his glory. So remember that next time the Holy Spirit says, don't post that. Don't comment on that. Sometimes Jesus is trying to hold you back and you don't want to be held back, but you need to be held back. <clears throat> Number four. Moving along. Number four, one of the reasons Christians are not fruitful is they have a lack of repentance. In Hosea, as we just kind of covered, God said that he blessed them and they didn't turn to him. So in Amos chapter 4, God sent judgments on Israel. He withheld rain. He destroyed their crops, the works of their hands, so that they no longer prospered. And even then they still didn't return and repent of their evil ways. He blessed them, and they refused to call on him. So he judged them, and they still didn't recognize what was going on. If we don't have a repentant heart, we demonstrate that we think we're perfect and we can do no wrong. We can sin by committing forbidden acts and, and unholy acts. That's called the sin of commission, where you commit a sin. We can sin by not doing something that God has commanded us to do. That's a sin of omission. We can sin by not submitting ourselves and living a rebellious life. That's a sin of rebellion. We can sin in our bad attitude. You know, actually, I remember very vividly one day I, I was at Southwestern in Bible College, and I, uh, my dorm pastor, uh, just a tremendous man who had a, a great... Um, influence on my life, Brady Derling, and uh, he asked me how I was doing, how, how, was my, how I was doing spiritually and everything. I said, you know, I'm doing great. Uh, I have not sinned at all today. And he said, well, it's 9.30 in the morning. I mean, you know, give it time. <clears throat> but no, later on that day, he was like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing good. I did not commit a single sin today. I feel great. I said, now, one dude made me really mad. And I, I yelled at him and, and everything, and he said, okay, so you didn't sin by committing a sin, but you had a bad attitude. And I'm like, I kind of feel like that's a gray area. And so as I began to uh, grow in maturity in the Lord, the Lord began to deal less with my behavior and deal more with my attitude. Because your attitude will determine your actions. And so... Even if I don't commit a sin today, I may still have fallen short. I may have missed the mark and fallen short of his standard and his example in Jesus Christ. He's the goal. And for every sin he reveals 
it shows us what we need to work on to be more and more like him. We need to have a repentant heart. When he reveals something to us, we need to say, God, forgive me and help me not to do that anymore. Not just say I'm sorry, but to repent means to turn, to be headed this direction in sin and for the Holy Spirit to grip us and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I want to go the other way. I want to pursue you and not a life of sin, not this bad attitude, not this action. Number five, a love of evil and violence, a reason that Christians are unfruitful, a love of evil and violence. It's going to get real quiet here in just a second. Again, when you get home today, I want you to take an inventory of the movies or TV shows in your Netflix queue, DVDs that you own, or video games that you play. Are they filled with evil and violence? And I assure you, as I said, self-fulfilling prophecy, you got really quiet. Hollywood can write some really gripping, great stories that draw you into this other world where you can easily excuse these sins that they flaunt. But what should you love more, HBO or Jesus? Can you really watch all that nudity and violence on Saturday evening and then lift your hands and worship to a holy God on Sunday morning? Do we really expect that all that sin that we watch over and over and over again will not affect us? Do we think that we won't be desensitized to it? Do we think that it won't rewrite our definition of how a Christian should live and behave? One person told me, ruined it for me. They said, just imagine Jesus is sitting next to you on the couch. Would you be okay watching that with him? I'm like, why did you do that? That was rude. In Micah 7, verses 2 through 3, Micah wrote this. He said, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his souls. Thus they weave it together. Micah described people who loved violence and evil. Did he call them godly and righteous people? No, he started this prophecy. The Lord said, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one who is upright among mankind. Micah warned Israel like I'm warning you, don't call yourself godly if you're really worldly. Don't say you love God if your actions demonstrate that you love the world. I could say more, but you're already mad, so. Number six, final final reason uh, that I've come across that I could come up with is uh, the final reason the Christians are unfruitful. Number six, they operate in their own strength. They operate in their own strength. As I said, this This message is kind of an overview of Old Testament biblical prophecy. Nahum, uh, probably some of you didn't even know that was a book of the Bible, but yes, Nahum. 
His prophecy against Israel in chapter 3, verse 12 of his letter says, All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. All of their works were done by their own hands, in their own strength. They didn't give thought to God. You know, their philosophy is, God bless what I'm doing. Instead of, God, I want to do what you're blessing. And so they didn't ask him what to do. They didn't invoke his name. They didn't ask for his counsel. They didn't seek his help. They just said, I'm going to do this. And God, I expect that you will bless me because we're the people of God and chosen people, blah, blah, blah. You get it. Bless it. Thanks. Amen. And sometimes we behave the exact same way. We want God to bless what we're doing. We have this idea and we're going to run with it. And so they did what was right in their own eyes and they operated in their own strength. When calamity came, they could not stand. Now, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave the great example of this principle. It was Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. This is what he said. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, that's incredibly important. If you highlight or underline your Bible, you should do that. And does them. Will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it, was, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What do those two houses have in common? Storms. Everybody goes through storms. Rain will fall. Floods will come. The winds will beat against what you've built. If you've built it on Jesus Christ as the foundation, it will last. It will stand. But anything built on your own strength and your own abilities with your own talents will not stand. Because when the storm comes, it will not be enough to withstand the power of the enemy. Now, I don't know anybody who honestly wants their life to fall to pieces. I don't know anyone who understands and realizes the reality of hell and says, yeah, I can't wait to go there. We all want to be saved from punishment. We all want to be saved from judgment. We all want to go to heaven. So why do we let the devil continually distract us from what God expects of us? Why do we let ourselves become unfruitful for him? Why do we repeatedly try to build our lives on things that won't stand up during the storms of life? Worship team, come on up. Go ahead and stand with me this morning. <clears throat> if you're in your lazy boy today, go ahead and stand. Get some exercise. If you wholeheartedly, listen to me here. As we, as we wrap this up, if you wholeheartedly love someone, you will not betray them. You would never let someone come in between you. For those of you that are married, you get this. You understand the commitment, the value you make. You will not let someone 
come between you. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so your relationship come with them comes before your relationship with anyone else. These two have become one. You won't tolerate somebody trying to weasel their way in between you and to divide what God has joined. When we sin, we demonstrate that our heart is not fully in love with Jesus. Because if we truly and wholeheartedly loved Jesus, we would choose him over that sin every single time. If we truly comprehended the depth of God's love, the tremendous sacrifice that he made, we would never betray him by sinning. When we sin, we demonstrate that we love that sin more than we love him. However, when you finally grasp a true revelation of God's amazing love and grace, you never want to sin again. And it completely removes the power of that temptation. Because you can say to the devil in that moment of temptation, I love Jesus more than I love anything. And I never want to betray his love ever again. In Genesis, the first Adam, he came in nakedness and shame to the fig tree for leaves to cover his shame. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus, sometimes called the second Adam, came to the fig tree looking not for leaves to cover shame and nakedness, but for fruit. And Jesus is still looking expectantly for fruit. If we are portraying ourselves as spiritually healthy on the outside, we need to live in such a way where we're spiritually healthy and fruitful on the inside. If we look fruitful, we need to be fruitful. If we're honest, we may see one or more of these areas that we struggle with. We may realize that we've been unfruitful. We may have some self-righteousness. We may have allowed some heresy to come into our theology. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know how you make something clean? You wash it. You cleanse it. And that's what Jesus does when we confess our sins. He forgives us and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we will humble ourselves, if we'll admit any reason we have for our unfruitfulness and we repent of it that God is a faithful restorer. He longs for us to look more and more like the image of his son Jesus. Habakkuk, rounding out the prophets here, Habakkuk chapter 3, he ends his prophecy with a very a fantastic connection back to the fig tree, helping us understand fruitfulness. He says in verse 17 through 19, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce and the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. He's painting a pretty bleak picture. There's no fruitfulness at all. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's 
He makes me tread on high places. Even if we were to take an honest inventory of our lives and see no fruit or see bad fruit, there's still time for course correction. There's still time to fix that. We can still rejoice in the Lord and trust His help to bring us into times of fruitfulness. So my question to you today is this, what are you building your life on? Are you building it upon yourself, your abilities, your strengths, or are you building your life on Jesus Christ, the solid rock? The worship team is going to lead us in this final song, and I encourage you as they do, let the Holy Spirit begin to shine a spotlight on your life. Any area of your life that needs to come under complete and total submission to Jesus and his will.